It's beginning to look a lot like Oh, it is, it is, it is. We made it. We are here. This is my favorite time of the year. I just, I love what Michael was talking about, and I made it this project these last few years to really think about what Advent is. Like, what is this tradition that we have grown up with? I grew up in a Methodist church, and we practiced Advent regularly. But how do I incorporate that into my home? How do I incorporate these four weeks of anticipating what I've started to call the sacred side of Christmas or the sacred season? We also call it Advent. It's just such a lovely season to practice in our homes and in our church. And it pairs so nicely with what I call cultural Christmas, which my kids call fun Christmas, which is the side of Christmas that is gift-giving and over-the-top decorations and maybe not coincidentally also involves a Christ-like figure coming into the world, but this time to deliver gifts, right? It is, it is this message that is so palpable in Advent and in Christmas. It points, all of it, all of it, points to one glaring message, that all of this, all that is too good, that is too amazing, dare I say too miraculous, it's actually real. That's what all of this is about, to remind us that the magical, the mystical, the miracles, the miraculous is real and all around us. As I was thinking about this sermon series and how we're preaching through Advent, I thought I'd kind of look up what I actually think a miracle means. What is the actual definition? I actually think Merriam-Webster did a pretty good job this time. It said, a miracle is a surprising but welcome event that cannot be explained by natural or scientific causes, usually attributed to divine agency or divine being. And as I read that definition, I thought, well, you know, in fact, for us, for Christians, miracles are kind of part of the kit and caboodle. Like, it's what it means to be a Christian. We start off with creation, we go to Noah, then we get Moses in the Red Sea, we go to Daniel in the lion's den, then we get Jesus in feeding the 5,000, we get Pentecost. The whole thing cannot be explained by natural and scientific laws. We believe in miracles. We believe in God actively working in the world. Kind of. Kind of. Because, I mean, I guess if I pressed you a little bit, you would nod along to those songs that we just sang about the virgin birth. You would kind of smile at those sweet moments that we talked about, the angels and the stars at Christmas. But then if I pressed you and I said, hey, have you experienced a miracle lately? Most of you would be hesitant to say yes. If something remarkable had happened in your life recently, you would attribute it to some remarkable human feat or a certain type of technology that has made something possible. And you would say, yeah, 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 that happened, but divine agency? I'm, I'm not so sure that that happens anymore. That point of view, what's so interesting about it, our view of miracles, our view of God, it's actually fairly modern. It's fairly recent. I was reading 
Reading's a strong term. I was trying to plow through this like 1,500-page book called A Secular Age. It's a philosophy book. Don't recommend it. I'm going to try to summarize it here, okay? Um, it's by this really famous philosopher called Charles Taylor, and he wrote this book called A Secular Age. And one of his hypotheses, which I think has been proven, is that up until the 1500s, most humans viewed the world in a really similar way. There was a universal belief in God, whether you were a Christian or not, there was a belief in some divine presence. And so people lived in what they called, what he calls, an enchanted world. A world that existed in physical form, but there was also this spiritual world around it. So they believed in things like angels and demons and other spiritual beings working their way in the world. And not only that, they believed themselves, humans, to be affected by these spiritual beings. He calls it that humans viewed themselves pre-1500 as porous, like a sponge. You could be molded, you could be changed by the spiritual reality of the world. But something changed for a lot of reasons in the 1500s. Humans gained a little bit of confidence. We learned how to understand the world better. We figured out the scientific method. We learned how to take the pieces of the world, how to examine them, observe them, and through this, we started to think, huh, maybe we can actually exert force on the world. And this continued for centuries, this idea and this building up of human confidence, and it was good for a lot of reasons. That's why we have medicine. That's why we have lots of the advanced science that we have. It saved a lot of lives as humans began to believe in themselves. But as they did, they also started to believe in themselves as autonomous, self-guided people. And it was no longer the world that was acting on them. It was them who was acting on the world. You just have to make it. You just have to figure it out. You just have to lean on your own understanding. And then, then we can make the world we want. You see, this gaining in human confidence also led to this loss in faith. And suddenly, this enchanted world wasn't enchanted at all. It was disenchanted. As I was reading Taylor's book, he doesn't make this premise, but I, I started to think, have we swung too far in the wrong direction over the last 500 years? Are we missing something? by this buying in to the secular way of being? Are we starting to lean too much on our own understanding of figuring out the world? Have we lost sight of what humans believed for more than 1,500 years? I think you could argue, argue that over the last, what, five, six years, we've seen some of that start to unravel, and some of us are less left wondering if we're missing something. Let me tell you what made this really real for me is that my son and I have this constant and adamant debate in our house. I'm convinced that Santa exists. He is not so much. And so every year we go through this whole rack and roll about whether Santa exists. And this year he came up to me and I go, he, he said, no, it's not real. And I said, why? And he's, he's kind of a nerd on National Geographic. We watch a lot of National Geographic in my, in my life. And so he goes, winged creatures are the only ones that fly. And I was like, what? He was like, the reindeer, the reindeer, they cannot fly. And I was like, but, but Joel, don't you believe in magic? And he looked at me and he goes, mom, there's no magic. 
and I'd had the same reaction you did. Like, I kind, I kind of was like, okay. And I hesitated because I thought, do I congratulate him for using the facts of the world and applying them to his own understanding and applying it to the situation? Do I say, good for you, you figured something out, you have a deep understanding? Or do I pause and say, but you're, but you're missing. You're missing a whole nother side of the story. You don't quite get it. And that same feeling in you that made you feel like a little sad when you heard that. I think sometimes we need to trust that that sadness is coming from somewhere, even if it's not the message the world is teaching us. And so what we're doing this Christmas season, this Advent season, is we're going to look back at all the main miracles in the Christmas story. And we're going to try to think about what those miracles teach us about how God works in the world. We're going to try to reclaim this enchanted world. Because here's the secret. The story that we celebrate this season, you have to believe in an enchanted world to really believe in the story. So this season, we're going to swing the pendulum just a little bit further back to try to find a truth that maybe we've been missing. So today, I want to start with the big kahuna of the miracles, the main miracle that comes at Christmas. I'm talking about when Jesus, just the fact that God came into the world. You know we're the only faith that believes that? We're the only faith that believes that God took on human form and actually walked and lived and had breakfast and lunch. We're the only faith that believes in that miracle. We call it, the fancy religious word, is the incarnation that God put on flesh. And so today, we're going to look at the incarnation through Matthew 1, verses 1 through 16. I actually want you, I'm not going to put it up here. So you need to look out your phones, grab them, or your Bible if you're one of those fancy people. We're going to get 1 through 16 in Matthew. I see you, Johnson. Look on your phone. I'm going to call you out. He's like, I don't have my phone. I'm better than that. Okay, let's look at what is it? What is 1 through 16? It's the genealogy. In other words, it's a really boring list of who Jesus was and who his ancestors were. But we're going to look at this genealogy. It's a whole list for 16 verses. And let me tell you, I've watched enough sermons this week of pastors trying to butcher these names that I thought we'd do it a different way. So we're going to watch this video. It's smidge long, but y'all can bear with me, of us looking through this list. As you do, follow along in your Bible as you're listening, all right? So we're going to read this together to look at the account of Jesus' genealogy, so where his line came from. So let's watch. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez he brought Hezron up and then came 
Aram, then Aminadab, then Nashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was a man, who was father of a good boy named Josiah. Grandfather Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a liar. And then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim. Eliakim had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliab. Listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, mother of Christ. Wasn't that better than me reading them? So much better, right? So I think we, I was having a joke with um, some of us earlier, I was like, we need to reclaim some of these names. Who's going to name their kid Nathan? I like that. Let's do that. But these names, it's kind of interesting because as you're looking at them, you're like, "Ah." I mean, these are kind of mediocre names. My guess is that you recognize like one or two and that whole thing. You look at that list and you're like, huh, where is the miracle in this genealogy? Where is God and a list of names that at best we've heard of one or two of them, and sometimes not for the right reasons. So I started to look and I started to think, okay, well, let's look into these names. And it doesn't take that long for you to look at some commentaries for you to see that one of the most unique features, by far, of this genealogy is that Matthew included women. That is not common at all. We have tons of genealogies. It was a big deal in Near near Eastern culture, not just Jewish culture. And so we have tons of these. All of them are men. That's how the lineage is passed down. But in this one, Matthew doesn't just include women. He has five women. And so you have to kind of think about, well, what point is he trying to make? Because obviously, to his listeners, this would have been a big deal. So we start to look at these women who highlight, I think, what Matthew is trying to say. So the first woman that is listed is Tamar. And you might not be familiar with her story, but... It's a rough one. She got kind of betrayed by her family, so ended up deceiving her father-in-law, pretending she was a prostitute, and then bore twins. Guess what? One of those twins ends up being in Jesus' line. Then we have the next one, who's Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite. You have to understand, that was a big deal back then. Being a foreigner outside of ethnic Israel was a big deal, not to mention the Canaanites were the ones who were in the land, occupying the land when Israel took over. So she was an enemy. And also a prostitute. So there is some morally scrupulous things going on there. And she's included in the list. 
And then we move on and we have Ruth, who actually, morally, is quite lovely. But she was a Moabite. She was from outside ethnic Israel as well. She married Boaz. And then we end up with one who is not actually mentioned by name, but that's on purpose. Do you see where it says Uriah's wife? That person, what's her real name? Anyone know? Bathsheba, thank you. Bathsheba, that's right. Her name's Bathsheba. Why didn't he name her if he named the other ones? Well, he wanted to make a point. She was married to Uriah. But then David stole her, had a child by her, and put Uriah in the front line so that he would get killed. That's problematic. Not great, but guess what? She had a son, two sons, and one of those sons who becomes a line in the line of Jesus. Isn't that crazy? These women who were looking at and thinking about, okay, where is the miracle in this genealogy? Where can I see the miraculous? And honestly, you read those names, even the women, you're like, not great. These are not fabulous stories about the reflection of humanity and who Jesus' line was. Okay, so maybe if it's not the individual's, Maybe we need to look at the larger pattern of what Matthew was trying to say to find this miracle. So if you look in your Bible, most Bibles separate this genealogy out into three parts, right? It starts with Abraham, then David, okay? And so we're talking about these parts, and you can see that Matthew, who is writing to a Jewish audience, is trying to like put a big disclaimer. Hey, guys, this is the story of the Old Testament, You remember, first, we started with Abraham, and God gave him a promise. You will bless all of the nations through your family called Israel. And I will give you a land, and that is why Israel is chosen. You have to live into this promise, and that's where Israel's story all begins. And then it continues and is kind of magnified through the covenant with David. Israel is kind of making it. They have a kingdom. They have a unified kingdom. They're starting to feel like they're living into that promise that God gave them through Abraham. And then what's the last section in that genealogy? Well, then then they get exiled. The low point of Israel's history. Right when they thought they were on their way up, the Babylonians come and take them from the land that God promised them and move them to a different land. We cannot underestimate how life-destroying this was for the Israelites. Everything that God had promised suddenly was put into question. And from exile, the Israelites never really recover. They make it back to Israel. They live there, but they keep getting taken over by foreign powers. And God sends prophets and tries to save them, but it never really works. And they can never figure out why God's promise isn't working. And that, that is how Matthew tells the story of the genealogy. He leaves it with that third section being the exile. So we have a bunch of people that are worse for wear. We have a pattern that doesn't actually tell a hopeful story or a hopeful ending. Where in the world is the miracle in this? I think that's when Matthew whispers back to us and says, that's it. The question you're asking, 
that's what the miracle is. Here's the thing, Israel, because he's writing to the Jews. Here's the thing. You thought you had this all figured out. You thought you knew what kind of kingdom God was promising. You thought you had it with David and it was going to last like that. It was going to look exactly like that. You thought you knew what people it was for. You thought you knew it was for ethnic Israel. And what Matthew was trying to show us is like, no, you were wrong. You thought you had it figured out. You thought you knew how to decipher miracles in the world, how God was working in the world, and you didn't. You didn't have it all together. Because the kingdom of God, the one that they dreamt of, it came in the person of Jesus. And the kingdom that they thought was just for ethnic Israel and righteous people about that, oh no. That genealogy shows that just like Jesus' forebearers are a mess, his followers are going to be a mess too. It's interesting looking back now and thinking, oh, we would have put that together, surely. We would have figured it out, how God was working in the world. Oh, but I think, I think we're just like Israel. I think we think we understand how God is working in the world. We think we know God's plan. And just when we think we figured it out, he says, you didn't know the time, the person, or the how. I came in a way and did a thing that you didn't even anticipate I gave you the answer to your kingdom, and I made it into a baby and put it in a manger, which people didn't even believe for hundreds of years. I wonder if us, like the Israelites, stand at Christmas just assuming we understand how God works in the world. We understand how this plan is supposed to work. We understand how we're supposed to put the pieces together, what it's supposed to look like, and we're wrong. What if we have bought so much into the idea that we make the world, that we put it together, that we use our own understanding to figure out the world, that we have lost sight of the truth that actually makes it real? What if we are missing out on the miracle that we've been living our whole lives? My hope for us this Christmas, my hope for us this Advent, is that we can start to lean a little bit less on our understanding and instead, let ourselves be surprised, like Israel was. Let ourselves understand that we don't know God's time frame, that we don't know God's plan, that we don't know how he's coming, but he's here. Because here's the thing. At Christmas, we always say, we're waiting, even just now, I said in Grove Kids, what is Advent? We're waiting for Christ to come into the world. And I had to correct myself because I was like, no, no, no. It's not that Christ is coming on December 25th. We celebrate that. It's that Christ is coming now. Since then, we have believed that Christ is always coming. We believe in an enchanted world, whether that freaks you out or not. 
We believe that Christ comes into the world. We do not believe in a God up in a sky. When we talk about the incarnation, when we talk about God taking on flesh, that did not just happen 2,000 years ago. It happens now. Through you, mostly. Through the Holy Spirit working in you. So this happened. I want us to take off, or at least dim, the secular lenses we have on. I want us to believe in an enchanted world. Not because I want to like hide and be naive and ignore stuff, but because my guess is that that view doesn't have all to teach us about the world. And there is something bigger, more true, more real, that we're going to lose the chance of seeing if we don't change the way we see. Let, let me pray over us this Advent season. Dear Lord, Lord who comes and moves in the world, not just at Christmas, but this whole time, let us believe in the miracle. Let us see the miracles. Let us name the miracles. Let us live in an enchanted space where we can exist and be like you. We pray that we may change our lenses this season, that we may be the guide for those in our lives to help them see the miracles too. We offer you this prayer as we move towards Christmas. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.